Welcome to this episode of The Weekly. My name is Trevor. I'm one of the pastors at the church at Greer Station. The Weekly is a podcast devoted to books, current events, and issues relevant to the life of our church. Now today, it's going to be a little bit different. It is me all by my lonesome. Um, I wanted to spend some time talking about the the conquest of the the king, the teaching series that we have been um, devoting ourselves to over the course of the last few weeks, the one that we finished up just prior to Thanksgiving. So we've been studying Matthew chapters 8 through 10. Uh, We called that series The Conquest of the King. And I don't know if you've picked up on this, but we have been progressively walking through the Gospel of Matthew one chunk at a time. So uh, last fall we began uh, in the Gospel of Matthew in a series called Announcing the Kingdom, where we just walked through Matthew chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. And we saw the ways in which Jesus is portrayed as the, the one who brings the kingdom, and in his preaching and miracles... He brings the kingdom to bear um, there in uh, those early accounts of his ministry. Then last spring, we uh, camped out in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We called that series A House Well Built, and we saw how Jesus is describing a wise, flourishing life. Um, and a wise, flourishing life is like a house well built, um, is the analogy that he uses. And kind of at the core of his teaching there was that we are to be People who, from our bones, from our, from our very core, are devoted to, to, to Jesus, devoted to following his kingdom and, and his, following in his ways. And then, of course, this fall, we've been in Matthew 8, 9, and 10, where we've seen Jesus portrayed as a warrior king who is on a conquest of healing and life-giving and mercy. Now, uh, so, so you see there, we have sneakily been walking through the Gospel of Matthew. Now, there's a couple of convictions beneath the way that we go about our teaching on Sunday mornings. So uh, first, we believe that God talks through the Bible. The way we say it frequently, or we try to say it frequently, is that God transforms us by His Spirit through His Word. So we are disciples, we we follow after Jesus, we uh, want to become like Jesus through the Word molding and shaping us. So we go to the Scriptures and we see Jesus there. We are uh, we hear words of forgiveness. We are assured of the grace that's offered to us in Christ. We are um, called to new life. We're given hope of the new heavens and the new earth. And, and we want to be attentive to the Bible. And because of that conviction, our regular Sunday morning teaching tends to be verse-by-verse verse Bible study. Uh, we, we, we assume that that's the, the best, wisest route for us to go, is to just take books of the Bible and systematically walk verse-by-verse verse as best we can through the Scriptures. Um, now, it's not to say that there's not occasionally topics that we want to hit on. We've done that before. For instance, you know, we did the, uh, the Church Matters series where we just laid a, laid a vision for how we do church, provide some biblical reasoning for why we do church the way that we do. But even, even in doing the topical series, we want, to, um, we want to derive our conclusions from Scripture. Um, so uh, we, we, generally, we, we generally go by verse, by verse by verse through books of the Bible. Um, again, that's not to say that it's not helpful to occasionally hit topics. Um, and the Bible is rich. There's, there's always lots of, of themes and uh, different things that we can draw and emphasize at any given time in any given passage. So we study books. Uh, but we've also found it helpful to take big books like the Gospel of Matthew, divide it up into chunks, find prominent themes within those chunks, and make the emphasis of the series one of those themes that's prominent in one of those chunks. You know, so again, uh, the way that we've walked through Matthew. Uh, Matthew is a, a really, uh, a highly organized book. Um, 
structured around these five discourses, and it's really easy to um, delineate uh, little substructures within the gospel. So again, we did Matthew 1 through 4, Matthew 5 through 7, Matthew 8 through 10, and in February, we're going to be beginning a series called For the Weary, and it's Matthew 11 through 13. So we're going we're gonna to jump into that next little chunk. Now, here's the thing. Um, on any given Sunday, in any given passage, whether it's three verses or 30 verses, there is always way more that, that can be said than can fit into a 35-minute sermon. So for me, the hardest part of preaching is always what not to say. Like, what do I leave out? Inevitably, somebody's going to have a question about this passage that I cannot spend time answering because I only have a certain amount of time. There's something within the passage that's left unaddressed. There's some uh, category of person left unspoken to. Uh, there's, uh, you know, any, any given topic or theological implication from this passage that I have to choose to leave on the cutting room floor because there's only so much that can be said. And I, I don't always choose the best things, you know, frequently when I teach or frequently when anyone teaches, um, you know, you always kind of reflect after the fact and think, you know, man, I, I really should have made this point or highlighted, you know, this aspect of the passage. Uh, don't always do it perfectly. But just want to acknowledge here that there are frequently times when we uh, there's things that we know we could address, but we choose not to. And so what I wanted to actually do with the episode today, uh, specifically concerning the conquest of the king, is I wanted to kind of do a B-roll. Like, what are some of the things that we left out? What are some of the aspects of these scriptures that we may not have been able to cover in depth on Sundays? So uh, this, is, this is the B-roll of the teaching series, The Conquest of the King. What are some interesting bits of, of Matthew 8, 9, and 10? What are some, some helpful things from that passage? Or what are some even uh, kind of uh, difficult elements of, of these scriptures that we didn't talk about on Sunday that maybe you talked about in your community group? Uh, but, but we wanted to highlight them here in this setting. So uh, with that, uh, appreciate you listening, and uh, here we go. All right, now, um, but before we jump in, let me, let me acknowledge that there could be a, a lot of B-roll to the B-roll, right? So I'm, I'm not saying that I'm going to cover the rest of the issues. I just wanted to highlight a couple of different elements uh, of this particular series that uh, are helpful that were, that were left out. Um, and again, we, there's, there's always more that can be said. There's like books upon books upon books written on this gospel. And I would defer those books, uh, but defer you to those books for some of these issues. But I did want to highlight just a couple of really uh, helpful things uh, about this section of scripture. So uh, Matthew, across the whole book, Matthew is really concerned with us seeing the ways in which Jesus and the story of Israel overlap. So, for instance, in Matthew 2, verses 13 through 15, we see that Jesus and his family have gone to Egypt to flee from Herod. Um, we see, like, obvious references there to uh, the Exodus. You, you have Herod position, kind of like Pharaoh, as this paranoid pseudo-king who's, who's fearful of his throne, and so he tries to eradicate children to prevent him being, from being overthrown. So there's some obvious parallels with the Exodus story. But really interestingly, in verse 15, we're told that Jesus, by as a child going to Egypt, actually fulfills what the scriptures spoke when they talked about uh, uh, 
this Hosea reference, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, that doesn't always jive with the way that we, we, we typically think of fulfillment, uh, but I think Matthew's point here is to help us see that Jesus has come to be, uh, in a way, the new Israel. He's come to fulfill and complete Israel's vocation as the light to the nations. Uh, Jesus has come to uh, live in perfect covenant obedience to the Father, and in Jesus we see the story of Israel being brought to its point, brought to its completion. Uh, the story of Israel is that they were to be a people who were to bless all nations, um, and because of their rebellion, they and, and they they were uh, they were uh, complicit in in the rebellion that uh, they they been called to be a remedy for. And so Jesus comes and lives in perfection in order that uh, their vocation could be fulfilled uh, and that the, the nations could be brought into relationship with the God of Israel. Uh, so we see that there's some definite connections between Israel's story and Jesus. Uh, another example of this would be Matthew 5 through 7. It, it seems like Matthew really wants us to see in the Sermon on the Mount, he really wants us to see how Jesus is a new Moses, how Jesus is... Um, uh, fulfilling the, the promise at the end of Deuteronomy that one greater than Moses, a prophet greater than Moses, would come. And so Jesus says, you've heard it said, you've heard what was the law given to and through Moses, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. So Jesus is positioning himself as one who has come to, as he says in, in 520, fulfill the law. And then when you get to Matthew 8 through 10, the conquest of the king, it seems like Matthew wants us to see some connections between Jesus's ministry um, and, and Joshua's ministry. Um, and, and it also kind of recalls Numbers 13, uh, uh, Matthew 10, when Jesus calls his apostles um, and, and commissions them out into the nation of Israel, into the house of Israel. It recalls when Moses sent out the spies into Canaan. Um, now, the interesting thing about this idea of conquest and this idea of Jesus being on a conquest and Jesus um, sending his disciples out like the spies were sent into Canaan, kind of the, the interesting thing around all of that is that they're being sent into the, the, to, the, to the midst of the house of Israel, to the people of Israel. Now, if you remember, uh, the people of Israel were promised the land of Canaan. And at the time of Jesus' ministry, they actually were in the land. But the problem was... They were still oppressed by Rome. Um, the, the, they had a temple, but it was Herod's temple, and it was super sketchy. Herod kind of positioned himself as the king of the Jews. And they, they still had all of these messianic expectations that remained. Um, but the irony is, is that Jesus seems to be going on a conquest through Israel in the same manner that Joshua went through a conquest through Canaan. The tragedy, I think, that Matthew wants us to see is that the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, is like, a, is like a new Canaan. They are tragically like the Canaanites uh, in that they are sinful and rebellious. Uh, the conquest that Jesus goes on uh, is about finding the, um, finding the Rahabs in the midst of the Jerichos. That's why we see Jesus responding the way that he does with, with tremendous mercy and grace to like the leper and the centurion and Peter's mother-in-law. Uh, also, the, the, the girl who's restored to life uh, and the woman with the bleeding issue there in the, the middle of chapter 9, verses 18 through 26. I think what we're meant to see is that tragically, Israel has kind of become a new Canaan. Uh, 
in Jesus as he is making his way through this new Canaan, the, the tragic irony that the people of Israel had become like the people that they had displaced. Jesus is looking for those folks, regardless of whether or not they were unclean, regardless of whether or not they um, were the right kind of people, quote-unquote. Jesus is looking for those folks who would receive him, uh, which, is, which is a really kind of remarkable idea. I think that's also... Uh, This idea of Jesus being on a conquest and kind of the tragedy of Israel being like a new Canaan uh, helps provide some understanding to what's being described um, in in, um, chapter 10, verse, uh, let's see, where did it go? Chapter 10, verse 23, when Jesus, upon sending out his apostles, uh, tells them that they're going to go uh, that they're not going to have enough time to go through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, the, the, the language there, Son of Man, comes from Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel has this vision of one like a Son of Man who is given a kingdom, an eternal kingdom, by the Ancient of Days. And Jesus takes that title very deliberately upon himself. He says, I am the Son of Man. I am that figure from Daniel 7, the one who is given a kingdom by God himself. That's me. Um, He is identifying as that particular figure. Um, But he has actually come not to bring judgment on the Romans necessarily, but to bring judgment on the house of Israel. Jesus comes and Israel rejects him. Israel tragically cannot see that he is their Messiah. We see that tragically in the leaders of Israel, the Pharisees and the scribes, their unwillingness to see Jesus, who he truly is. Uh, and the irony that is the religious leaders missing as severely as they do, and the humble and the, the lowly and the Gentiles seeing, they, they're the ones who are blind enough to see that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, and Jesus is saying here that there is going to be a judgment that's going to fall upon Israel for their rejection of the Messiah. Um, that's what he's referencing there in, in Matthew 10, 23. Uh, in all likelihood, he's describing the events of 70 A.D., when the Roman Empire comes through this region and totally destroys the temple. Uh, this is, a, I think, signifies that, um, uh, that the new wineskins have come, that the old wineskins have been burst, and that the new covenant is established, and, and God is now doing something through Jesus and Jesus' people now as the, the, the fulfillment to the story of Israel. Um, speaking of the new wineskins, I, I think... Something that we can spend some time considering is uh, Jesus' words there in Matthew 9, 14 through 17. So Jesus is approached by the disciples of John, and they're really confused as to why Jesus' disciples don't fast. And Jesus says this. He says, verse 15, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Now, I think Jesus is making the point here that he is the the Son of Man, right? The, The Messiah, the bridegroom who has come. And so the reason his disciples don't fast is because it's not appropriate to fast when you're celebrating. And you should be celebrating that the bridegroom is here. But then he, he kind of strangely uses the analogy of the, the, a new cloth and an old garment and new wine and old wineskins. He says that you don't take a piece of new cloth and put it on an old garment because 
you know, that'll, that'll just tear the old garment worse if you catch it on something. The same way you don't take good new wine and put it into old wineskins because the old wineskins are prone to drying out and bursting. And then, then all your good wine is going to spill all over the floor. And I think what Jesus is talking about there is the, the, the new covenant that he has come to bring about. Again, Matthew 5.20, Jesus tells us that he didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill the law. He's come to fulfill or bring completion to the story of Israel, which includes Israel's fasts and uh, the cultic rituals that were God-given and good, but were only given for a season. Jesus has come to complete this story and bring completion to the old covenant as the old covenant. So Jesus is the new wine, and the old forms of Judaism are not, are not, uh, Jesus didn't come to just reaffirm those. Jesus came to fulfill and in a way replace those. Uh, this is why um, when you read um, elsewhere in the New Testament, the question you know, arises of whether or not Christians should be circumcised. You know, circumcision was seen as, the, it, it was given as the sign of the old covenant. And the point that the authors make again and again is now the, the old covenant with its forms and, and rituals ha, has been completed in Christ. It wasn't bad, it was good, but it was only given for a season. And that season has ended. It is completed in Christ. Paul says in Galatians 4, it's like, uh, it's like having a tutor as a child. Um, so its season has passed. It has been completed in Jesus. And Jesus has brought about something new. Therefore, circumcision is not required uh, for folks who participate, who are, who, are, who are welcomed into the new covenant. Or we should say physical circumcision. Uh, the New Testament authors make a point to compare, uh, uh, to say that the sign of the, the new covenant is um, heart circumcision. That is to say, uh, conversion or rebirth, which is signified uh, in our, and symbolized in our baptism. It's also why you have uh, Paul in Colossians 2 make reference to like Sabbath feasts and festivals and say like, look, it's, it's good for some of you guys. If you want to continue to do those things, like by all means, continue to do those things, but don't heap that expectation on others because the new wine skin or the new wine rather has come and the old wine skins weren't built to contain it. So there's all sorts of things, all sorts of implications we could tease out from that. But I think that's kind of a, a really crucial, um, passage and understanding the relationship between the new covenant and the old covenant. What Jesus has come to do has come, he has come to fulfill the old and is bringing about something new. Not that the old is bad, but the old is old. Simply that. Some other uh, really helpful um, additional things that, that we could have mentioned, um, and, and we could take a look at in Matthew chapters 8 through 10, is in uh, verses uh, 40, uh, chapter 10, 40 through 42. All right, so uh, the last sermon in the series, I kind of briefly ran through this. Uh, but the idea here is that Jesus is telling his apostles that as you go about the house of Israel, uh, you're going to have some folks that are going to receive you. So he, he covers there in, in the earlier parts of chapter 10 uh, what it's going to mean for people to not receive the apostles. They're going to they're bring judgment on themselves. But for those who receive the apostles, they're going to be rewarded in the same manner that the apostles are awarded. So he says that the one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. So he's saying there, um, I'm sending you out as, as my representatives in the same way that the Father sent me out. So as you go out and people receive you, they are going to be 
um, rewarded in the same manner that you are. And then he says in verse uh, 40, let's see, what is this? Verse 42, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he's a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Now, who on earth are these little ones? It's a really good question. Um, it seems like kind of a strange, uh, if he's speaking about children, it seems like kind of a strange place to just include this additional reference to children. You know, we know elsewhere, Jesus talks fondly about children and invites, uh, you know, the little children to come to him and, and holds up children as an example of faith. But the context would seem to suggest that Jesus is talking about his apostles. He refers to his apostles as these little ones here in this passage. And he says that even if you give one of these apostles, one of my representatives, a cup of cold water because he belongs to me, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Now, I think that in this phrase, little ones, what Jesus is doing there is, is speaking um, with a term of endearment uh, about these apostles. These are, these are friends, brothers that he loves. You know, you think of John, the way that he speaks of uh, the folks that he's writing to in 1 John when he says, little children, you know, beloved, these that I love. Jesus is sending out these apostles, and he's sending them out, um, these little ones that he loves, his friends, to certain inevitable opposition. And in some ways, this is really challenging. Um, but the encouragement for us is that twice in this section, Jesus calls his disciples to follow after him. So what Jesus is doing in this section and what Jesus is inviting us into is a life of discipleship, a life of conquest in a sense, where we, where we um, in following after Jesus, we, we too are on a conquest in our evangelism and service and the way that we care for others and forgive and love one another, the way that we reconcile, the way that we handle conflict. We, we too are on a conquest with Christ. But the, the, I think the encouraging word for us is that Jesus is not calling us somewhere that he himself doesn't go. When Jesus has these hard words for his apostles about being sheep amidst wolves, we're reminded that Jesus is the one who subjected himself ultimately to death, ultimately to wolves, ultimately to a cross for us in order that we could be reconciled to him. And, and from gratitude, like the woman in chapter 8, who's touched by Jesus and whose fever leaves her, who stands up and serves him in response to his grace, like that woman, we follow after Jesus in gratitude for his gift of sacrifice, his, his death for us. But man, I hope that you're encouraged by this. I hope that, if anything else, uh, this episode spurred within you a desire to study the scriptures more deeply, to learn the scriptures, to learn the story of the Bible more fully, and to spend more time digesting Matthew 8, 9, and 10. So with that, I appreciate you listening. I uh, hope this was edifying. We will talk with you next time. Be sure to rate us and subscribe on iTunes. Thanks.